Heavenly Father, thank You for granting to us the blessing and the grace of forgiveness. Thank You for being a Savior. Not not merely a God who rules, but a Savior who redeems. Thank You for the gift of repentance and thank You for how You graciously come to us in our despair and provide for us what we can't really conjure up in and of ourselves. And Father, specifically, thank You for the commitment of reconciliation in the Ladwig home. And we bless Your name and we ask for You to cultivate a harvest of love and peace and grace. But frankly, Father, we all need it. Frankly, if if the doors were flung open to all of our homes, we would all be embarrassed by what people saw. And we would all be rightly ashamed of what we do and what we say and what we think. And so, Lord, produce in us a self-judgment this morning produce in us a willingness to look in the mirror at our own sins, at our own faults, ideas of how righteous we are, and help us to see ourselves for who we really are. And then when You help us to see that, Lord, cause us to look upward, to look heavenward, to look crossword that we might see Jesus Christ in all of His righteousness, in all of His purity, and in all of His grace, and in all of His love. And Lord, help each one of us to cast ourselves at His feet for mercy and grace. Father, the only way that we can really do that appropriately is to see Christ, to behold Him, And then to appropriate that vision in our own hearts and in our lives and our families. And so right now, we would pray that You would give us illumination. Show us Yourself powerfully. Speak into our lives that we may be transformed. In Jesus' name, Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. The text this morning is verses 21 through 43. 21 through 43. We're in our series called The Servant King. The Servant King. And what we are seeing about Jesus is that He is in fact divine royalty, but He is also a servant. That He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so I want to begin 
by reading verses 21 to 43 for you this morning. The title of the sermon is Why Trouble the Teacher? Why Trouble the Teacher? Let's begin in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, that is, from the side in which He had healed the demoniac, a great crowd gathered about Him, and He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, that is Jesus, went with him. And a great crowd, that is hundreds, thousands, followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in Himself that power had gone out from Him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And His disciples said to Him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. 
And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Human life is a a mixed bag of emotions and experiences. It is a mixed bag of highs and lows and peaks and valleys. It just is. And I think the sooner that we embrace that, the sooner that we understand that, the better off that we are. You know, there are times when life is gloriously sweet. I mean, have you experienced times where it's just amazingly sweet, where if you're a parent, you sit on the side uh, of your child's bed and you open up a book and you read the book to your child and, and for that moment in time, it is like time stands still and the sweetness of the relationship you have with your kid is unexplainable. Have you ever experienced that, parent? Or the blessing of a true friendship where you, for the first time in your life you walk arm in arm or hand in hand with somebody who loves you and understands you and is willing to, to, to help you and care for you and you can have conversations that are honest and real. If you've ever had that, you know that that's sweet. It's... It's glorious. Even the peace of walking with God. I mean, if you ever just experience moments in your life where just walking with God is a glorious thing, but at the same time that life is gloriously sweet, it can also be excruciatingly painful. Chronic physical pain. Emotional pain. Spiritual pain. And, and, and right when things are really sweet, all of a sudden, boom, it becomes really painful. And you don't know how you're going to get out of it. Life can be regularly discouraging. I mean, regularly discouraging. It's like one thing after another discourages you. It, it might be something that somebody does to you, or it might be a sin that you just com- seem to commit time and time again, and you're like, what am I doing? And you just live in this constant discouragement. But then, all of a sudden, it can be surprisingly thrilling. I mean, it can be something like falling in love. Well, that's a worldly term, but I think those of you who have been married, you know what that, that is. I mean, I remember, I remember the first time I realized that I'd really loved Jamie. And, and, and I, I didn't propose to her at that moment, but I remember feeling like I was walking on top of the world. That's how I felt. But life can be that way. It, it can be regularly discouraging and all of a sudden it's thrilling. It can be routinely mundane. Where you, whether it's your job or your responsibilities or whatever it is about your life where you just go, go on and on and you're like, this is just mundane and then all of a sudden something can happen and it, you're just thrilled or, or you're surprised. You hear words like, uh, you have cancer. Or... Um, we need you to move to North Dakota. Or you're pregnant. I mean, it, it, life can just catch you by surprise. But I think it's extremely important, church, for us to understand that life is a combination of joy and sadness. It's a combination of routine and surprise. It's a combination of, of sweetness and bitterness. It's a combination of of discouragement and encouragement. And it's so important that when you come to Christ, 
When you profess your faith in Christ, there are no promises that says it's going to be all encouragement and no discouragement. It's going to be all joy and no pain. It's going to be all sweetness and no bitterness. All right? There are no promises like that. The only promises that you have when you come to Christ is that you're not going to be alone. All right? The promises that you have is that when you walk through the peaks and the valleys of life, you will walk through them not as a condemned sinner, but a forgiven one. Not as a child of wrath, but as a beloved child of a heavenly Father. Not as a rebel against the kingdom of God, but as a valuable citizen within it. Not as a helpless and hopeless person, but one who has a Savior who has died for you, and one who has a comforter and a counselor who lives inside of you to give you hope and help in your time of need. Now in this incredible scene that we just read, I believe that Mark knows all of that about human life, and he brings this account to us about the ministry of Jesus and this synagogue ruler and this woman with the issue of blood, and he says, I'm going to teach you a few life lessons here. I'm going to teach you some lessons that you really know. I think that Mark is essentially acting as a wise, older man who wants to sit on the front porch with a bunch of young believers and say, let me teach you some life lessons for a little minute, for a little while. And so here are the life lessons that, that Mark wants to teach us. He wants to teach us these life lessons and he wants to show us how Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the answer to these life lessons. And so here they are. All right. First of all, we all suffer. We all suffer. Second, we all need faith. And third, we all need mercy. We all suffer. We all need faith. And we all need mercy. And so, the first lesson that he teaches is we all suffer. If you just want to look down at the text, I'm convinced that Mark reveals these, these two key people their experience with Jesus, the synagogue ruler and the bleeding woman with no name, and he's trying to show us the, the stark contrast between these two people. He's trying to show us that the distinctions could hardly be any further apart than what these, these are. And so the synagogue ruler is religiously elite, while the woman with the issue of blood is religiously an outcast. I mean... The synagogue ruler, he actually rules the synagogue. The woman, she can't even go inside the synagogue. She has this issue of blood, likely a, 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 a uterine bleed, a hemorrhaging that goes on constantly, which Leviticus 15 says that she is uh, disallowed from the congregation, from the assembly, because she is unclean. And so here you have this man who approaches Jesus who sits on the front row of the synagogue and this woman who approaches Jesus who can't even get near it. He has the best seat in the house. She has no seat in the house. He has great honor among the religious people. She has no honor among the religious people. Everyone knows his name, Jairus. Nobody knows her name. We don't even know it. He is a man which inherently in his society makes him honorable. She is a woman which inherently in their society made her dishonorable or not as honorable as men. And so he's religiously elite. She is religiously an outcast. But it doesn't go 
just that far. It goes to the social realm of life too. Uh, he's socially elite. She's socially an outcast. He has a wife. He has a wife, someone to love, someone to care for, someone to sleep in the same bed with, someone to touch, someone to feel, someone to experience affection with, while because of her issue with blood, she doesn't have a husband. She can't touch anybody. Who's going to marry a woman that you can't touch? He has a child who's 12 years old, 12 years of joy. She has no children. All she has is a hemorrhage for 12 years. He knows 12 years of blessing. She knows 12 years of suffering. He has many friends. He has friends who approach Him in the interaction with Jesus. He has friends who are waiting for Him at home with His kids. She has no friends. She doesn't come with friends to Jesus. She doesn't leave to go see friends after she sees Jesus. Well, You've got religiously and, and socially, but also financially. He's financially elite. He has a nice, spacious house. She doesn't have a, a house. She doesn't even have any money. She's destitute. She has spent all of her money, all of her wealth, trying to get well for the last 12 years. He has enough money to hire professional mourners. People to come around the house and just simply to cry and to wail at the loss of his daughter. And she's hired doctors for years who've left her penniless. I mean, the differences could not be any greater. And I think Mark wants us to see this, and he wants us to tell us we all suffer because even though they are so different, even though they are worlds apart from one another, they've got some similarities. They are both desperate. They are both desperate. Jairus is desperate to have his precious daughter saved from imminent death. I mean, the need is urgent. It is life-threatening. He's known 12 years of joy, but in this moment, there is an acute need to be rescued. And so he runs to Jesus. And so here she is. The need is not as cute. She needs healing herself. She needs cleansing. She needs restoration. She is exasperated. She is isolated. She is alone. She is depressed. She is struggling. The needs are different, but the desperation is the same. They're both helpless. Jairus has no control of his situation. She has no control over her situation. Jairus has tried whatever he could try. She has tried everything that she could try. And they both feel helpless. Their hands are in the air. They don't know what they're going to do. And so they're desperate. They're helpless. And what are they doing? They're suffering. Jairus is suffering emotionally with fear and anxiety and the terror of losing his child. She's suffering physical pain, religious isolation, abuse from doctors, financial exploitation, physical digression. She gets worse and not better. She is suffering. And I believe that Mark would tell us right now, it doesn't matter whether you're 11 years old or 21 or 41 or 71 in this room, in this building today, Mark would tell us you all suffer. And if you haven't suffered yet, you will suffer in the future. And you need to know that. And you need to know a few things about your suffering. First of all, suffering is a result of the fall. Alright? Suffering is a result of the fall. God did not create us, man and woman, with this innate suffering ability and this innate suffering experience. 
He created man and woman good and godly and perfect. He created a world that was good and wonderful and perfect. But man decided to rebel against God's goodness and God's perfection and said, I want to be like God. And so man sinned and cast the world into a curse and into the fall. And ever since then, suffering has been part and parcel to the human experience. But it is crucially important for us to understand that God did not initiate that. We did. We did. And so suffering is a result of the fall. And another thing that we need to know is that suffering is not necessarily a punishment for our personal sins. Now, sometimes it can be. If I go and rob a store and, and I get caught and I get put in jail and then into prison and I suffer in prison, that's a result of my personal sin. But many times we suffer and it's not necessarily related to something that we've done wrong. We live in a world that's cursed. We live among a people who are cursed. And so when we suffer, oftentimes it's, it's just simply because this is broken. This is a broken world. This is a broken temple. This is a broken body. And so we suffer. Another thing that we need to know is that suffering is not a sign that God loves you less than He loves other people. Suffering is not a sign that He loves you less than He loves other people. We all are tempted to play the, the comparison game. Why does she get to get married way before I get to get married? Why does he get to have a job that makes this much money and I've worked just as hard and got as much schooling and I don't make half what he makes? Why is it that they have a bunch of kids and we don't have any kids? We... we we play this comparison game and say, oh, God doesn't love me as much as He loves them. God doesn't care for me as delicately and as kindly as He cares for them. God is being cruel to me. But I want you to know, this is the really the thing that I want you to know about suffering, is that suffering is God's way, His merciful way to draw you to Himself. To show you that He is sufficient for your needs. To show you that these things that you're comparing yourself to others with, you're trying to gain your, your happiness and your identity and your delight and all of your feelings of comfort and meaning and feelings of, of worthlessness in those things. And Christ is, is screaming out to you in your suffering and saying, I am worthy. I am sufficient. I am able to meet all of your real needs. And that's what Christ is essentially saying to the synagogue ruler named Jairus and the bleeding woman who has no name. And so, lesson number one is that we all suffer. Lesson number two is that we all need faith. We all need faith. What do we learn about faith from this passage? I think we learn it from Jairus, we learn it from the woman and we learn it from Jesus. We, we learn different lessons about faith and that we all need it. If we look at Jairus in verses 22 and 23, we learn some really important things about faith. First, faith is, is actually coming to Jesus. Look at 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. 
Faith begins by coming to Jesus. It's not staying where you are. It's not saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm just going to stay here, and if Jesus comes to me, then, then I'll respond to Him. No, faith actually runs to Jesus as the only source for your hope, the only way that your desperation is going to be met and relieved and alleviated. And so, and He comes to Jesus. So when we have faith, we have to come to Christ. We have to run to Christ. But look at the rest of 22. Faith is falling before the feet of Jesus for mercy. Faith sets as its posture a posture of humility. Faith comes before Jesus and says, I've got nothing of myself that I can bring. I've got no righteousness. I've got no purity. I've got no perfection. I've got no power over my situation, Jesus. I want you to help me. And that's the nature of faith that it cries out as well. While Jairus is on his knees, he's crying out. He's imploring Jairus, he's imploring Jesus to help him and to help his family. It's crying out to him. Like I've said over the last few weeks, y'all, we, we have become so domesticated in our Christianity that we think that we are above crying out to Jesus. We believe that we are, we are above being humiliated and humbled before, before the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And, and I would say this, that Jesus is offended that we are unwilling to cry out to Him. We also learn from Jairus that faith is trusting in the power of Jesus. Look at the end of verse 23. He says, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He trusts that Jesus can make her well. He trusts that Jesus can do what nobody else can do, including Himself, and that's bring His daughter's health back. Now, we learn a few things about faith from this woman as well who is bleeding. Look at verse 27. For her faith begins with hearing about Jesus. Hearing about Jesus. Paul tells us this in the book of Romans, that faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing the Word of God. The Word about Jesus Christ. We must hear about Him. Now, we don't know all that this woman knew. We don't know all that Jairus knew. What did they hear about Jesus? This man heals diseases. This man cleanses those who are unclean. This man preaches the kingdom of God. This man puts himself above the, the rulers of the synagogue and the rulers of the temple. This man says he's from God, that he represents God, and he's ushering the kingdom of God. Whatever it is that they knew, they believed. And I just want to stop right here, y'all. And I want to give you this simple principle. It is not so much how much we know about Jesus. It's how much we believe about what we do know about Jesus. We can accumulate pages and pages and pages of knowledge about Jesus. But there are people in this world who know very little about Him, but what they do know about Him, they believe. They trust and they cling to and they say, I believe that about Jesus and that's what I'm going to stake my life on. Yeah. Let's don't be a church. Let's don't be a people who knows a ton about Him but's unwilling to believe Him for it in our lives and our circumstances right. and in our suffering. And so faith begins with hearing about Jesus. Faith responds to that message about Jesus. Verse 27, she had heard the reports about Him and came up behind Him in the crowd and touched his garment. She didn't say, oh, that, 
that guy must be great. I hope he can help some people. No, she's willing to respond by saying, I'm going to go see him. I'm going to go touch him. I'm going to go see if I can be healed by him. Um, this woman would not be welcome in this crowd. Here she is wading through these hundreds of people, certainly probably touching up against all kinds of folks. Here she is unclean, reaching out to this man who is clean. This is an act of faith. This is an act of boldness. This is an act of courage to say, I don't care what other people think. I know He's my only hope. And no matter what they think about me, no matter what they say about me, no matter how many noses are turned up against me, I'm going to Jesus because He is the one who can heal me. And so she responds to the message that she has heard. And then look at faith. Faith understands that Jesus is your only hope. Verse 28, she said, If I touch even His garments... I will be made well. I will be made well. She understands that Jesus is her only hope. Sometimes, sometimes we trust in others. Sometimes we trust in our jobs, our, our marriages, our families, our success, the size of our house, the fact that we have a better a better place and a better vehicle and a, and a better situation than other people do. And we, we would never say that we trust in those things, but that's truly what we trust. Then we say, and we trust Jesus too. I love the fact that this woman is so desperate and that Jairus is so desperate that they understand that they've got nothing else that they can trust. A rich man who has everything, a poor man, a poor woman who has nothing, both realize that they are helpless apart from Jesus. And so, Faith understands that Jesus is your only hope. And then look at verse 33. We see that faith produces courage before God and men. Faith produces courage before God and men. Verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she'd been healed. She came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told Him the whole truth. Think about the scenario. Think about how, how disgusted people would be that this woman would, would speak to Him. That this woman would come in front of Him and begin to address Him. Now, she's in fear and trembling because she realizes at this point, she's talking to God. She had heard these words. She had heard all these things about Him. But at the very simple touch of His garment, His tassel, she is made well. She becomes clean. And so she realizes now she's got to talk to Him. And she has courage before both God and men because she realizes who her Savior is. Now, let us tarry here. Look at Jesus. Jesus teaches us a few things that are so important about faith. All right. First of all, faith is effectual when it has the right object. All right. And I just, I want you to see that in verse 34. In verse 34, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Jesus is not saying your faith in faith or your faith that you just think one way or another, you're going to find a way to get made well. What was the object of her faith? Jesus is the object of her faith. Jesus is the sole singular object of what she's believing in and what she's trusting in. And Jesus is affirming that. He's saying your faith is effectual because its object is correct. It is very important, y'all, that we are a group of people 
who don't just believe because we believe. You know, I, I talk to people a lot of times when I go into hospitals and things, and, and I say, well, I, I want, I'm going to be praying for you, and they say, well, I'm just going to believe that it's all going to work out. I'm just going to believe that it, all this is for a purpose. Well, it is all for a purpose. And ultimately, things are going to work out. But it's because you trust in Christ. It's because you believe the Savior. It's because you believe who He is and what He's done as a Redeemer that it is going to be all, all right. And so faith is effectual when it has the right object. Continue to look at verse 34. If you've got your Bibles open, just kind of keep your, your eyes down on there because faith gives you peace with God, Jesus would say. He tells her, go in peace. Go out in the knowledge that you've been reconciled with God, that you've been had your peace made with God. You're not just healed physically, you're healed spiritually. You're, you're not just made clean ceremoniously, you're made clean eternally before God in heaven. So go in peace, you've been reconciled. And then he says, faith gives you personal renewal. Look at the end of verse 34, he says, be healed of your disease. She's already healed. She, she's already experienced healing. Why would Jesus say, be healed of your disease? I believe that this is a public declaration so that everyone could hear it. Not just her, but everyone who is around. It's almost like when you and I were justified. When you and I expressed faith in Jesus, God declared us righteous in His heavenly court. And, and God essentially says, you, no matter who tells you you are unsaved, no matter who wants to cast the stones at you because you have sin in your life, God in the heavenly court has publicly declared that you are innocent, that you are not guilty. You are declared righteous. You know that that happened in your life? If you're a Christian, that happened. And I think that there's a way in which that's what Jesus is doing here when He says, be healed of your disease. I'm publicly declaring that you are cleared. You are cleansed. You are healed. And so faith is not a, a blind leap in the dark. It's not a last-ditch effort for relief in this world. It's not the removal of all logic and all sound reasoning in the hopes that something might could happen good in your life. That's not what faith is. All right, Faith is intellectually believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is emotionally committing your soul to Him. Everything that you have is, is in Him. Everything that you're hoping for, wanting, desiring is in Christ. And it is willfully determining to give your whole life and your whole heart and everything about you to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. And so, we need to know, church, that the righteous have always lived by faith. We sometimes want to rewrite the history books. We, we look at heroes of the past and we just say how honorable that person of faith was. How honest they were. How, how much integrity they had. We look at the life of Joseph in Genesis 37-50 to and we just say, look at his integrity. Look at his honor. Look at his perseverance. Look, look at how wonderful and moral of a person that he was. And we, we go through the Scriptures and we just kind of rewrite it as if these people were morally higher than what we are. And I just simply want to tell you, the righteous have always lived by faith, not by inherent morality. It's always been that way. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. By faith, Noah constructed an ark 
By faith, Abraham obeyed God when he was called out to go to a place that he had never even heard of. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even though she was well past the age of conception. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but instead was willing to be persecuted with the people of God. By faith, the people of God crossed over the Red Sea even though the Egyptians were swallowed up by the water. And by faith, Rahab the prostitute was ultimately saved because she was unwilling to cast her lot with the disobedient but with those who trusted in the God of Israel. Make no mistake, church. Faith is crucial to your life. We all need faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to be reconciled with God. Without faith, it is impossible to be sanctified before God. And without faith, none of us will be able to see one day the glory of God. So let's exercise faith. And so I want to ask you today, do you have faith? And right now, you're either trying to decide, can I just simply say, yeah, of course I have faith. I I believe in the person and work of Jesus. I believe that He lived a perfect life, that He died a sacrificial death, that He was buried, that on the third day He rose from the dead, that ultimately He ascended into heaven, and one day He's going to come back for those people who believe in Him. Yeah, I believe that. Okay, yes, I check, I have faith. But I want to ask you, intellectually, do you believe that? Emotionally, have you given your heart and your soul to that truth? And willfully, volitionally, have you said, I'm staking my whole life on that? Are you staking your life right now on what Jesus has done for you and who He is? Is that how you order your family? Is that how you order your life, your daily comings and goings? Is that how you order your mornings? Is that how you order your evenings? Is that how you order your spare time? Is that how you order all that you do? Because if you have faith, you will order your life around that faith. So I want to ask you, do you have faith? The object of your faith determines the value and efficacy of it. Are you trusting Christ? So we all need faith. Thirdly, we all need mercy. We all need mercy. Let's, um, let's see how Jesus was merciful to the woman at, and to Jairus. Let's just look at the woman, first of all. We begin reading about it in verse 24 and following. This is how Jesus shows Himself to be a merciful Savior. He heals her. He cleanses her. He's gentle with her. Look look at verse 34. He calls her daughter. He doesn't say woman. He doesn't say who are you. He calls her daughter. It's a term of endearment. It's a a family term. He, He affirms her. He says your faith has made you well. He doesn't say, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Why didn't you come around to the front of me so that I could see you? He simply says, your faith has made you well. I affirm the quality and the quantity of your faith. He blesses her. He says, go in peace, daughter. Go in in the confidence that you've been made right with God and right with me. 
He publicly announces her healing, be healed of your disease, so that all can know that she is pure and clean now and can worship with those who worship. This is how Jesus is merciful to the woman. And then, how is He merciful to Jairus? Well, let's look at this. First of all, He commits Himself to Jairus when Jairus is hopeless. Up there in verse 23, Jairus is saying, my my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she'll be made well and live. At that point, Jesus could say, Jairus, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that your little daughter is sick. I'm so sorry that she may die. I have thousands of people around me right now. These are thousands of people who need to hear the gospel. These are thousands of people who need hope. They need help. And the fact is, Jairus, death is a part of life. Death is just something that we all are going to to experience. And so I I so hate it for you, but but that's just the way it's going to be. It's not what the text says. Verse 24 says that Jesus went with him. Jesus went with him. And then, if if we kind of pick up where Mark picks up down in verse 35 and following, Jesus commits himself to Jairus when the crowd is faithless. They they say, your daughter's dead. Well, why trouble the teacher any further? Frankly, this is not an odd question. I mean, I think in some ways it could be an appropriate question. You, you came to the teacher so that he could heal your daughter from her, from her disease or, or from, from dying, and she's dead now. So why, why bring him all the way to the house when he can't do anything now? They have a lack of faith in who Jesus is. But even further, as we read on down, you have these professional mourners, these people who are hired to weep and wail loudly at the, at the sign of death. And so this huge crowd is surrounding this little girl who's 12 years old, and they are... Oh, this is terrible. This is awful. Oh, and they're just they're just weeping and wailing. And then Jesus comes into the picture and he corrects them and he says, "Why are you weeping? The child isn't dead but sleeping." And immediately the mourners become laughers. They're faithless. They they don't believe in who Jesus is and what he does. And so his friends, this group of people, but but Jesus commits himself to Jairus even when they are faithless. And then he commits himself to Jairus when his his daughter is lifeless. The fact is, y'all, she is dead. She is. But from Jesus' perspective, he can make this statement. Number one, he's going to raise her from the dead. Number two, he doesn't want the message of her death to life experience to go around everywhere because he's in control of his destiny, not other people. Now, as we follow the track here in verse 41, I just want you to see how Jesus treats this girl. He says, uh, taking her by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. This is a phrase of endearment. It's not something, it's not like some magical incantation. This is exactly how the little girl's mom might wake her up in the morning. Honey, I say to you, get up. Get up, honey. It's time to get up. Let's get ready and go get, for, get breakfast. That's the kind of statement that Jesus is making to her. Honey, get up. And what happens? Immediately she gets up and begins walking. And and Jesus is so compassionate toward her and toward Jairus. He sees the condition that she's in. He says, hey, get her something to eat. 
I just think that's a precious way to end the story. Jesus' compassion really knows no bounds. And so what is mercy? Mercy is the combination of God's compassionate heart and His condescending love. His compassionate heart and His condescending love. God was in heaven looking down at the plight of man and He saw us. We were sinful. We were depraved. We were living in darkness. We were living in depravity. We were living in the dumps. And God's heart of compassion motivated Him to an action of love so that He sent His one and only beloved Son and said, go fix things. Go change things. Go restore things. Go renew things. Go, go, go renovate things. Go, go change things. Go transform things, Jesus. And that's exactly what He does. And so, Jesus is compassionate. I want to read to you a, uh, a short story called The End Has Not Been Written. It's in Tim Keller's book on suffering. The title of the book is Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And I believe that this is a, a great way to understand the compassion of Jesus. The End Has Not Been Written by a woman named Tess. My crisis of faith occurred early in adulthood. Detached from any significant personal suffering, in my training to be a physician, I had participated in the care of untold numbers of tragedies. Seven-year-olds being thrown from pickup trucks, fatal automobile accidents, 25-year-olds diagnosed with breast cancer, heart attacks on Christmas Day. I've seen a lot. I've treated a lot. And as I wrestled with these challenging circumstances, working through them with my husband Barry, our faith had been tested. God increased our faith such that we trusted Him, even if we didn't understand Him. And over the next several years, as my understanding of the complexities of human physiology grew, I began to develop more and more amazement that anything in the human body ever went right. How any baby was born without birth defects was a miracle. How we could continue to breathe and digest and fight cancer while sleeping was a marvel. The idea of nature being in a very delicate, very tenuous balance all by the sheer grace of God was driven home to me almost on a daily basis. So the idea of pain and suffering occurring and people asking the question, why me, was not part of our narrative. More the question became, why not me? What did I do to deserve this unmerited string of unbroken blessing? In early 2012, my mother was diagnosed with metatastic and recurrent ovarian cancer with a terminal prognosis. We displaced our family of four, pregnant with our third boy, to my parents' house in Arizona to be with her until the end. Three weeks after our arrival, she died and was reunited with our Lord. In the last days of her physical illness, she became increasingly delirious. But remarkably, what she was quoting was Scripture. It was so embedded in her heart that when disease had ravaged her mind and reduced her to incoherent ramblings, what was left was the Word of God. As we buried her, my prayer was that the Lord would place His Word so deep in my heart so that when my mind was in extremis, I would only be able to speak His words back to Him. 
in August of 2012, we welcomed our third boy in three years. Our oldest child turned age three, six weeks later. Life was near perfect. Fourteen weeks later, on a beautiful and mild November afternoon, I returned from work into the blissful chaos of our home just when our nanny was waking up our baby from his nap. Her screams of terror took several seconds to penetrate my consciousness. I walked into our bedroom knowing exactly what had happened. I knew he had died before I laid eyes on him. My very first thought was Job 1.21. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Followed by 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All the years of training combined with the incredible power of the Holy Spirit to equip you with exactly what you need when you need it came over me. I was on the phone with my husband at the time. I told him Wyatt had died and he needed to come home immediately. I performed CPR while on speakerphone with 911, but I knew it was just a formality. Policemen and detectives came and went, ruled out a homicide, and then the medical examiner's office arrived to take my baby's body. I refused. I was not giving up my baby without a fight or at least an argument with God. I knew that he said about asking and receiving and not receiving because we don't ask, and the widow who annoys the judge enough to wear him down and grant her request and faith the size of a mustard seed. For one hour, my husband and I, along with our nanny, prayed for resurrection over our son. Actual, physical resurrection, like Lazarus. We went to the throne of God boldly, completely lucid, not grief-stricken, and asked as forthrightly as we could to give us our baby back. Not my will, but yours be done. God heard our prayer. He said no. And I told him, okay, but you're going to have to give us, you're going to have to get us through this. Because we cannot do this ourselves. In the end, the cause of death was positional asphyxia or SIDS. He wasn't even sick. But the end has not been written. The Lord has shown us over and over again how He never intended for us to go through this alone. He gave us Himself. He gave us the body of Christ. The morning after our baby died, two of our friends showed up without our calling to look after our children. Our Redeemer Church community mobilized an army of prayer warriors and help warriors. Meals were sent. Families were flown in from Nicaragua, Arkansas, Texas, and Arizona. People gave up their apartments for our families, rented an apartment down the block, delivered meals to our nanny, planned and executed the memorial service, printed bulletins. Every single last detail was taken care of in typical type A New Yorker style with precision and excellence and all without our knowledge or consent. And so we were allowed to descend to the very depths of our grief. experience it in all of its agony and emerge on the other side. And when we emerged, our community had been transformed in unity through suffering and we were pregnant. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Tim Keller once said that God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that God knows. 
The idea that the Prince of Heaven would empty Himself and become poor to live and dwell among us is humbling. The idea that there is nothing in the human experience that God Himself has not suffered, even losing a child, is sustaining. And the idea that in His resurrection, the scars of Jesus become His glory, and that is empowering. God will use these scars for His glory as they become our glory. Indeed, the end has not been written. I share that with you in its entirety and in its long length. Because faith oftentimes ends up in healing, in life saving, but it seems like more times than not it doesn't. Christ is not calling us to Himself so that we can get everything that we desperately want in this world. Christ is calling us to Himself that we can get something way better than everything that we want in this world. We can get Himself. And we can have His sufficiency. And we can have the pleasure of knowing and trusting Him. If you look down at your text one last time, and if you look at verse 35, Jairus' friends come to him and say, why trouble the teacher any further? I want to tell you why Jairus was justified to trouble the teacher any further. Because the teacher is not just a teacher. He's a merciful high priest. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in all ways was tempted yet as we are, but not with sin. He was justified in, in troubling the teacher further because the teacher is not just a teacher, he's a healer. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, and who redeems your life from the pit. The teacher is not just a teacher. He's a Savior. Jesus has come to save the people from His sins. He's not just a teacher. He's an advocate. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's not just a teacher. He's God. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says. I am who I am. I'm eternally present. I'm eternally existent. I've always been. I'm always here. I'm always here. Come to me with your needs. He's not just a teacher. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. John is in heaven getting a vision of glory. And he begins to weep and wail because no one is found worthy to open the scrolls. And then all of a sudden an elder says, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He has conquered. Redeemer Church, there are three life lessons. We all suffer, we all need faith, and we all need mercy. And I want to tell you that the teacher who is being troubled here has come, and he will alleviate all of your suffering ultimately. That he will validate your faith in him. And that he will extend to you mercy to the degree that He will forgive all your sins. He will cleanse all of your unrighteousness. He will give you a home in heaven. And He will give you a body like His own that you may mirror His very image. This is the kind of healer that He is. 
I would invite you to stand right now and to sing in praise of our great Redeemer because He is not only a teacher, He is a Savior.